Amen. Okay. So, I'm excited uh, tonight. We are going to continue down this road of uh, describing what the gospel is not. I've had some good discussions this week, including just today, with people over the gospel and over grace. And uh, one last night, had an extended text exchange with someone who texted me. And I love dialoguing about grace and the gospel and uh, it's obviously the most important subject in the world uh, to me and in Scripture. The Bible is about grace from cover to cover. And so I love Wednesday nights. I love this uh, time together, and we want to uh, you know, continue uh, the dialogue. And, and uh, if you have questions or comments or anything at any point, raise your hand. I've given some of you. If not, I've, I've, if you came in after I was passing these out, this is a one-page, or sorry, two-page front and back single sheet document called Head Faith versus Heart Faith, Is There a Difference? If you recall, last week on Wednesday night, we spent quite a bit of time talking about that, and I found this in my files, and I thought this might be a good way to kind of reinforce that and give you something tangible to take with you. So I put some at the back, and I'll, I'll have some up here too, and be sure you pick one up before you uh, go home. It lists a bunch of verses front and back that demonstrate that biblically there's no distinction between the head and the heart. And that was a really good discussion last week. I really appreciated some of your comments and questions and additions to the to the discussion and it really helped uh, bring some clarity there so pick up one of those and then also want to continue to remind you about the video that was brand new last week now it's a week old but what is free grace and uh, if you've not watched that go to notbyworks.org click on videos and you'll see it in the list there encourage you to watch that it's uh, less than an hour and it's basically a overview of what we mean when we talk about grace being free. A uh, conversation I had today, really great, good, helpful, iron sharpens iron type conversation, uh, comment was made that I frequently get that, well, isn't free grace redundant? It is redundant, and it's also biblical. Sometimes the Bible uses phrases for emphasis that are redundant. Uh, Paul wouldn't have to call grace free because inherent within the word grace is the fact that it's free. If it's not free, it's not grace. Grace means free gift. That's what the word means. But there are passages that actually add the qualifier free to free gift. It's almost like it says free, free gift. Free grace is free, free gift. And it does that for emphasis. And so the, the phrase is thoroughly biblical. I deal with all of the passages that use the phrase, and then I get into the broader message of what are the implications of a grace if it's free. And then... Uh, talk about some of the misconceptions about free grace, talk about the movement. There's a movement that often is called the free grace theology or free grace movement, um, which I've been very heavily involved in for 32 years. And I talked about some of those and uh, what, what are some of the uh, mistakes that people that associate with the free grace movement have made, because there are some, and how we should not uh, condone uh, those viewpoints because they're not biblical. But uh, it's not about a movement, it's about what does the Bible say, and the Bible says grace is free. So very, very helpful. Hopefully you'll take a chance, to, uh, take the time to watch that. If you're watching this, the live stream or later watching the video, I just want to point out that you can see that video at the Not By Works website. So we have been talking about 10 false understandings of the gospel, and it's probably a good time to kind of reintroduce here for a few sentences anyway the the premise the premise is when you talk about what the gospel is everybody amen so i mean everybody agrees right christ died for our sins and rose from the dead it doesn't get any simpler than that 
And I can say that in just about any church that's a Bible teaching church, no matter what their theological persuasion, and, and be met with a chorus of amens. But when we then begin to delineate what the gospel is not, that's when you start to step on toes and people begin to, uh, to fire back and, and have problems. So when we say that, for example, grace is free, when we say that the gospel is simply Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, that the, the saving message of the gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His atoning work at Calvary. It's the person and work of Christ that brings salvation for all who believe. When we begin to say those things, it necessarily eliminates a lot of other things that over the years people have come to associate with the gospel. And when you don't mention those, people just implicitly assumed, well, they're part of it. You know, he didn't say anything about repentance, so that must be part of it. He didn't say anything about surrender, but I'm sure he means that that's part of it. Or he didn't say anything about forsaking your sin or making Jesus Lord or committing your life to him or, you know, all of those things that we've been talking about. But I'm sure they're in there somewhere. I want to be clear, and that's the reason for this, uh, this series of messages. When we say what the gospel is, it, by definition, excludes other things, because the Bible excludes them. So, some key verses that we've talked about, obviously, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Uh, when it says that not of yourselves, it's talking about our salvation, not faith. This is the dialogue I had yesterday, the person had some really good questions, really, you could tell they're really thinking through this issue, and they wanted to know, well, isn't faith a gift? And I said, no, it's not a gift. <laughs> faith is a volitional free choice. And we're told more than 160 times that's what we must do in order to receive the gift. And they said, well, isn't expressing faith to receive the gift, isn't that a work? No, it isn't. Any more than in a physical relationship, if I give you a gift and you reach out and grab it, do you consider yourself to have worked to earn the gift I just gave you? Of course not. You're just receiving it. You're taking it, right? No one would take a gift and feel like they've worked to get that gift. That's the nature of a gift, right? Now, if you did some work, and then as compensation you were paid with some dollar amount or some tangible item, then yeah, you could say, I worked to get that. But simply receiving a gift is not work. Never has been. A gift is free. That's what makes it a gift. But like all gifts, gifts have to be received, and that transcends the physical or the spiritual. In the, in the spiritual realm, there is a spiritual gift, so to speak, that is eternal life, forgiveness of sins, being made right with God, reconciled to a holy God. That gift is totally free, but it must be received. It's not automatic. Not everybody gets saved because Jesus died on the cross for their sins. Only those who receive the gift get saved. How do you receive the gift? By faith. That could not be more clear. So this passage, both grammatically in the Greek text, remember the New Testament was written originally in Greek, as well as just logically, cannot be saying that faith is the gift. Faith is the means of receiving the gift. What the gift is here is our salvation, our eternal salvation. Another one, which is the theme verse for our ministry, not by works ministries, is Titus 3.5. It's actually the same exact Greek construction as we just saw in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, even though there it's translated not of works, it could easily be translated not by works, same exact Greek phrase. 
But in Titus 3.5, the New King James translates it, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And some of the, one of the verses that I deal with in the What is Free Grace video, uh, the new one, uh, is Romans 3.24, where we're told we are justified freely by his grace. Now, grace there means, if you look it up, free grace, free gift. So it is redundant to tell us that our justification, what, what is justification in, in Scripture? What does that refer to? Anybody know? When we say we're justified, what does that mean? Just as if I never sinned, is that what you said? Yeah, that's a good mnemonic device to help remember it because it means You've been made righteous before God to, to be declared righteous or made righteous, which is to say you're perfectly right, propositionally righteous, which means it's as if you never sinned positionally because you can't go to sin can't enter heaven right so we have to have the perfect blood of christ and his perfect righteousness imputed to us and 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 we we get that by faith so justification is the process of being declared perfectly righteous because of what christ did on the cross how does that happen by faith so we are justified declared righteous freely by his free gift Sounds redundant, right? Do I really need to say that a free gift was given freely? <laughs> no, it, it should go without saying, but Paul is emphasizing here the freeness of grace. Yeah, Jeff. There's one neat thing, too, is that in some languages, like in Spanish, justo also means righteous. So just, like justo, yeah. basically. So in justo. some languages, justification and righteousness are even more closely linked. Yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's uh, to be declared righteous, and we have to be righteous because as jesus said in matthew 5 48 to the pharisees and scribes unless your righteousness exceeds that of the pharisees you'll never enter the kingdom you've got to have perfect righteousness in fact he said in matthew 5 i think that's 17 or 20 in that in there but then in 48 he said in fact you've got to be perfect literally you've got to be perfect so uh, we're all sinners. We need a Savior. We need the righteousness of Christ given to us. It can only be given freely, and it can only be uh, appropriated if we receive it. A gift rejected, it doesn't become yours, all right? So Jesus said in John uh, five, uh, John 7, if you or, or John 8, let me look it up, uh, 824, I think it is, if you, die, if you don't believe that I am He, yeah, John 824, you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. So, you gotta, you've got to receive the gift, and you do that by faith. And here Paul is saying that, we are, that that is a free thing. In fact, the Bible ends with the same word, the adverb here, dorean, uh, and it means freely, without charge, at no cost. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Um, another foundational uh, principle that we come back to again and again in our questions and answers and discussion is the distinction between positional righteousness and practical righteousness, or between what the Bible calls justification and sanctification. Now, some people uh, push back a little bit with the term sanctification because there are passages in the Scripture where that term is used to refer to justification. In other words, it's a synonym for justification. But justification is a one-time moment in time when by faith you believe the gospel and you're declared righteous, and it rescues us from sin's penalty. The vast majority of the time, sanctification in Scripture refers to our progressive sanctification, where over time, as a believer, 
as we yield to the Holy Spirit and walk by faith, we become spiritually mature. But whether you call that spiritual maturity or sanctification or progressive sanctification, whatever you call it, it is part of the discipleship process. It relates to our practice in life, how we behave. So the left-hand column is something that is invisible, that happens spiritually. It happens when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. And we are once for all declared righteous and rescued once for all from the penalty of sin. Done deal. Then as a new believer with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, our goal is to yield to his, his inner promptings in our life, to walk by faith, to, to, to uh, you know, live a godly life, to be more Christ-like, to have our practice in life reflect our position in Christ. But if you don't understand those two distinctions, you're going to struggle over a lot of passages because there are a lot of passages that you think are dealing with our position, how to get saved, when really they're talking about our practice, how to live the godly life, right? So you need to always ask yourself, am I dealing with positional truth or practical truth? Is this telling me how to get saved to begin with? Or is this telling me how to live the Christian life now that I am saved? You see the difference? You've got to keep those distinctions uh, in check. So, so far we've talked about these four, these five rather. We said the gospel is not a commitment. The gospel is not a contract. Uh, the gospel is not giving something to the Lord. It's receiving something from Him. The gospel is not repenting of your sin. And the gospel is not surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. So, this would be a good time to kind of review. Are there any of these that still kind of, when you read them, you think, well, why not? Or are you sure? Or how come that's a problem? You know, we can clarify them now. Yeah. Sometimes you use the phrase, place your trust. Um, and I know that's not really giving per se, but it sounds a little bit like it. There's some similarities there. How do you, how do you take yourself out of that? Yeah, so the question, I want to make sure this mic is picking up. I should have checked out ahead of time, but Gary was distracting me, so there we go. Um, yeah, that's, you probably didn't get picked up, yeah. So anyway, it's right now. So the question is about the phrase, placing your faith in Christ. To me, that's just a synonym for trusting Christ. It's taking a verb and turning it into a noun. So to be saved, I have to trust Christ or believe in Christ. Or I need to place my trust, noun, or place my belief, is, is my belief in Christ. So it's just a different way of saying the same thing. I don't think I, anybody would confuse placing your faith in with giving something to the Lord in any sense. At least not that I've come across. Yeah. Yeah, just sort of like it takes as much effort to place your trust in Christ as reject Christ, right? Like pushing Christ away, basically? Yeah, so, you know, ultimately, as I talk about in my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell, the, the ultimate reason anybody is in hell is unbelief. If they've never trusted in Christ, you know, in fact, if you look at John uh, chapter 3, verse um, 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. John 3, 36. I'm actually going to talk about this verse Sunday. I'm working on our message in our Hebrew series, and it's the fifth and final warning passage. 
and I was just dealing with John 3 today, just in, in study and preparation uh, for that. But um, it says, uh, if you look at verse 18 in John 3, Jesus says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. <laughs> so ultimately, unbelief is the reason that people go to hell, but there are a lot of things that might keep people from receiving the free gift, which is done how? By believing in Jesus Christ. Yeah. I would think that it's easier to not believe than it is to believe. There's so many other influences that would lead us not to accept it. Yeah, so I talk about, the question, the comment was, it seems like it would be easier to not believe than to believe. And I think that's true. I think, and that's the, the genesis of the book, Top Ten Reasons. And there are probably a lot more than ten, but these are just ten that stick out in my mind, why someone would not receive a free gift. But um, I talked about that issue of how hard it is to believe something, that you can get something as valuable as eternal life for free in that video that I keep referring to, What is Free Grace? Um, because... Uh, you know, there, there is a sense in which the gospel is simple, and yet it's not easy to believe, especially for adults, right? Adults have a tendency to, you know, sort of do it ourselves. We don't like to have to trust somebody else for something. And especially when it comes to heaven or hell, we think somehow I've got to contribute something. I've got to bring something to the, to the table. And so when you say, nope, totally free, completely paid for by the blood of Christ, all you do is receive it, people reject that. And, and of course, Satan's been blinding men's hearts to the good news, which, by the way, that's what gospel means. I think everybody knows that, but gospel, euangelion, good news. It would not be good news if I, you know, like, like when I go to my son, let's say I went to one of my sons and said, I've got great news. I'm going to pay you to do six hours of yard work. They're going to be like, well, I'm happy Happy you're going to pay me, and yeah, maybe I'll do it, but how is that good news, right? But if I said, I've got good news, I'm going to give you $50, well, that's good news, right? It's a free gift, right? So any gospel that becomes a contractual arrangement where we do something and God says, okay, then you get this, quid pro quo, that's not good news, that's just an arrangement, right? So it is hard. You're right, Gary. I think people... There are many reasons that people, um, you know, reject the gospel, the things that get in their way, that blind their hearts. Um, and even though it's so simple a child can understand it, and the actual mechanism of doing it is quite simple, nothing hard about it, actually taking that step, back to your comment, you know, it really is, we, we, the Bible uses the term, you know, faith or believe more than 160 times as the only condition, believing in the right object, Jesus Christ. Um, but, you know, if we were to drill down on that, what we're talking about is a volitional choice. It's a decision, right? You're making the decision. Who am I trusting to forgive my sin and give me eternal life? Uh, am I trusting my religion? Am I trusting my works? Am I trusting my heritage, my upbringing, my baptism, whatever? Or am I going to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone? That's a choice. That's what we mean when we sometimes say place your faith in. It's, it's just another way of saying trust in. Yeah. 
Can you explain number four a little bit? I need to go back and listen to that one. But just a quick high level, what you mean by the gospel is not repenting of your sin? Yeah, so we've talked about this a lot, and it just seems like we're in a season right now at Not By Works Ministries of of sort of addressing this issue on a number of fronts. And this conversation I had yesterday was about this issue. Um, but the, at the macro level, first of all, the, terms, the term repent just means change the mind. There can be no argument about that. Okay, nobody can, I mean, words mean what they mean. It's a compound word, meta, naeo, meta meaning again, naeo, I think. Uh, uh, infinitives in, in Greek are all I, like we would say to think in English. In Greek they say I think. So it means to think again or I think again. Um, and the noun is the same thing, metanoia, uh, changing one's mind, right? Or the, the act of changing one's mind. So it, the, the noun and verb forms are only used a total, combined total of 58 times in the entire New Testament. Most of them have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with eternal salvation, heaven, or hell. People change their mind. We looked at one in Hebrews 12 just recently. It's the same word when uh, uh, Esau could not convince Isaac to change his mind about when he forfeited his birthright. He said when he could bring about no repentance, no change of mind. That's what he meant. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words metanoia and metanoia are used often to refer to God. God repented. Right? So it just means change of mind. Now, never mind, that's another theological question of what does it mean when God changes his mind. We're, we'll table that for now. But what we can say with certainty, I hope, is that it doesn't mean God stopped sinning. Right? So the Bible never says you've got to stop sinning or change your mind about your sin or be sorry for your sin or cry over your sin or feel badly about your sin or any things that people think repentance means, which it means none of that anyway, but even if they... Even if it did, the Bible never says you have to do that to be saved. What we have to do is know that we're a sinner. You cannot be saved if you don't know you're a sinner, because saved means from what? right? If you don't know you're drowning, you're not going to reach for the life preserver. If you don't know you're under the penalty of sin, you're not going to reach for the saving work of Christ. So knowing you're a sinner and repenting of that sin are two entirely different things. And the Bible never tells us to repent of sin to be saved, ever. Ever. So... There are a couple of passages in Acts, and we talked about all of these in detail. Um, uh, if you want to go back and look at the, last, the, the, the videos on this, that use the term without reference to sin in, as a description of what happens when you trust in Christ. So let's look at one of those. For example, um, in Acts, uh, I think it's 20... Let me, let me put my finger on it here. Six. Acts 26 and verse uh, 20. So Paul is, you know, appearing here before Agrippa and he says... Me to read it so small a print here um, in Acts 26 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works fitting of repentance. So, very, a couple of very important things about that. He doesn't say that they should repent of their sin. Every time you see the word repent, just insert change your mind. And then, like all words, context has to 
give us the meaning, change their mind about what? Well, change their mind about Christ. Change their mind about who they crucified. Change their mind and recognize that the one they put on the cross was actually the one who can forgive their sin and give them the eternal life. He was the Messiah. They just need a change of mind, right? And then the second thing that's important to notice about this verse is for those who erroneously suggest that repentance means a change of behavior, which it emphatically does not, we see here that you can repent, but then you need to do works that are, equal, that are consistent with your repentance. Because repentance is a mental thing. It's a mental decision. It's a change of mind. Behavior is not. And so there are several passages in Scripture where it talks about bearing fruits worthy of repentance. Well, if repentance meant change your behavior, then Paul would be saying here that, that we were telling them that they should change their behavior and change their behavior. <laughs> no, he's saying they should repent and then change their behavior. They should change their mind, and then they should also change their behavior, do works befitting of it. But the point is, the book of Acts is a historical narrative. It tells us what happened. We do not build our doctrine on historical narratives. If you take my Bible study methods class, we go over 24 foundational rules for how to study the Bible. One of those 24 is historical narratives do not teach a doctrine directly. They illustrate a doctrine taught elsewhere. And so Acts 26.20 is not telling us how to get saved. Paul is simply characterizing the message that he was preaching, which was a message of change your mind. You dummies, haven't you realized what you've done and what's happened and who Jesus is? You need to change your mind about him. It has nothing to do with stopping your sin or forsaking your sin or turning from sin. And, and we could go through every one of the occurrences of repentance, and there's not a single passage that says repent of sin to be saved, to get an eternal life, to go to heaven, to get into the kingdom, nothing. Because repentance of sin is not the gospel. At the very minimum, the most, or I should say the maximum, the most you could say is that on a, a few occasions, less than a half a dozen, the process of placing one's faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life is characterized as a change of mind. And it is, right? And we, could, we can understand logically how every single person who gets saved, you could say in that moment they have changed their mind about who they were trusting in. They used to trust in their good works or their religion or their catechism or their seven sacraments or their baptism, you know, whatever it is. And they've changed their mind, and now they're trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And I don't have a problem if someone says, yeah, that's repentance. But, you know, the Bible is so clear, again, more than 160 times on what it takes to be saved. Why would we want to insert a new word that the Bible never inserts, never uses? In fact, John's Gospel, which is the only Gospel written exclusively to tell us how to have eternal life. That's the purpose of it. <laughs> John 20 tells us that. You don't find the words metanoia or metanoia a single time in the whole gospel. So if repentance, however you define it, was a requirement for eternal life, and John gave us an entire gospel to tell us how to have eternal life and omitted it, well, that creates a problem, doesn't it? He gave us bad information. But the reason it's not in there, and John's gospel is often called the gospel of belief because it uses the word faith and believe so often. Pistuo is the Greek word and pistis is the noun, faith and believe. It uses them so pervasively throughout 
that it's people have taken to calling it the gospel of belief. No one calls it the gospel of repentance because there's no repentance found in John's gospel. So I think just, you know, when you really understand the meaning of the word, you'll understand that, uh, you know, there's no, there's no requirement. Unfortunately, you know, you see so many doctrinal statements and church doctrinal statements and particularly Reformed theology suggest that salvation is a two-step process, repent of your sin and believe, that somehow you've got to forsake your sin or hate your sin. You can't get saved if you still hang on to your sin. Well, yeah, you can. <laughs> Guess what? You can. Jesus never says you've got to turn away from all your sin to be saved. As a matter of fact, you couldn't do that even if you had to. I mean, how would you, how would you, let's say, play devil's advocate, let's say that turning from your sin, forsaking your sin, or hating your sin, was a requirement to be saved. Um, how would you quantify that? What does that look like? And, and if I need to do that to get to heaven, how can I ever know for sure that I'm going to heaven? I mean, did I hate my sin enough? I still do it. Maybe that means I didn't hate it. I still do it. Maybe it means I didn't turn from it. I still do it. Maybe it means I didn't forsake it. See, our attitude towards sin is not the issue. Let me say this as plainly as I know how. When it comes to that moment, that punctiliar moment in time when we pass from death to life, as Jesus says in John 5, 24, when we believe in him, our attitude towards sin is not the issue. We have to acknowledge we are a sinner. Sin is very much the issue, but not our attitude toward it. You see the difference? It's not like I've got to, you know, disavow sin. And say, okay, sin, I hate you. I'm never going to do you again. I'm, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to forsake it. And I'm now doing a U-turn, which is the way you see people describe repentance in these bad gospel tracts. So I've turned my back on sin. I hate you now. And because I did that, God says, okay, you can get in. Well, what happens three days later when I look over my shoulder and there's that red shiny apple and I say, oh, I think I'll go have another bite. Am I still saved? Maybe I didn't forsake it enough, right? So the Bible never conditions our eternal destiny upon our attitude towards sin. Upon our acknowledging our sin? Absolutely. But it, faith means one thing in every lexicon when you look it up. There's only one meaning of faith. Confidence and assurance. Those, that, that idea. The Reformers came along and infused into the meaning of faith, even though it never means that, this notion of pledging and promising to follow God and, and forsaking all unrighteousness and turning away from sin and being sorry for your sin. And by the way, being sorry for something is not in any sense what repentance means. A lot of bad English translations of the Bible will translate the word metamelami, which is be sorry for, as repent. Repentance just means change of mind, change of mind, change of mind, change of mind. Could be change of mind about anything. Could be change of mind about selling your birthright for a bowl of porridge. You know, you change your mind, wish you hadn't done it. Uh, or it could mean change your mind about God or about Christ or about sin. Could be, but none of that is, is, uh, is being sorry for it. People change their mind and don't have any emotion attached to it. That's why there are different words. But anyway... The Reformers said that if you're really going to believe the gospel, that has to carry with it this notion of what they call fiducia, which is a pledge or promise to give Christ your all and to, to forsake your sin. And I'm just saying that you can't find a verse that, that says that. So we've got to let the Bible speak. 
And the Bible is clear that repenting of your sin is not a requirement for salvation. Uh, talk to people about it a lot through the years, and even though they can't find a passage, they'll say, well, it's implied. It's implied within the word faith. Well, how come, I mean, how do we just get to arbitrarily say that something is implied within faith? Can we, is it implied that to have faith you have to own cattle or you have to own an ostrich or you have to, I mean, you could just make up the most ridiculous thing and stick it in there. That's not what faith means. Faith is confidence or assurance. Uh, is that, I mean, I've been, I'm I ranting. So, but. Yeah, it's kind of the, the whole thought process is a little bit new to me, but Luke 13 comes to mind. You probably talked about that. Yeah, Luke 13, 3. Uh, I have it. I haven't read it in a long time, but but Ironside held the same view of change of mind. So I'm sure. Yeah. But he all he might not be talking to, you know, about heaven or hell there. So do you have Luke thirteen three open? Uh yeah. So it's uh, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall likewise perish. You meant to say, I think you read it wrong because doesn't it say, except you repent of your sin? Oh, it doesn't say of sin? No. All right. So, again, not that you're trying to prove this point, but people will bring that verse up. Say, see? It doesn't say repent of sin. Jesus is talking there in the context of a bunch of Galileans who just died. And he says, and, and everyone was saying, well, they must have done something wrong to do that. And Jesus says, you know what? Unless you change your mind, you're going to die too. <laughs> but it doesn't say anything about sin, right? Right. Well, I'm 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 being sarcastic. Oh, okay. So I was trying to I was trying to make the point. Obviously, not very well. <laughs> um, thank you for the courtesy laugh. I appreciate that. Um, no, I, I was just trying to point out precisely that that it doesn't say repent of sin. So there's not a single passage that says repent of sin and be saved. There's two problems with Luke thirteen three. It doesn't say repent of sin, and it doesn't. It isn't talking a perish there. When it says, except ye repent, ye shall, also, ye shall likewise perish, the word perish is apolumi, which just means die. It's the same exact word the disciples used on the Sea of Galilee in the boat when they said to the Lord, and they were, of course, believers who were going to heaven, Lord, save us or we're going to apolumi, we're going to die. And so Jesus is talking there about death. And if you don't change your mind... You're going to end up dying too, but it's not a it's not a heaven or hell passage, and it's not a sin passage, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was reading through probably half a dozen uh, different translations: NIV, ESV, King, King James. They all say repent. And then we came to NLT, both in that thirteen three, and in this passage in Acts, it does say repent of sin. Really? Yeah. So I'm wondering that the NLT is kind of. Not a very accurate translation. No, it's not. NLT is inherently paraphrastic. It's just loosey-goosey. It, it, it's very theologically motivated, and it's not a word-for-word, -word, what's called formal equivalent translation. It's the New Living Translation. So we know the Living Bible was one of the first paraphrases out there, and this is the New Living. You know, So, um, so yeah, the point is, Repentance of sin is never required as a, you know, never listed as a requirement for salvation. And even, even still, you know, even the, most of the passage, by the way, in the back of getting the gospel wrong, I have an appendix that lists every one of those 58 occurrences of the 
nouns and verbs, excuse me, and it shows you where they're used and what it means in context. So you got, you know, 160 plus, by some accounts, 180 times when the New Testament conditions eternal life on faith. You get comparatively little numbers of times that the words repent even are used, and the vast majority of them are unambiguously not related to salvation, like when the Bible uses the word repent of Esau regretting selling his birthright. It has nothing to do with So you strip all those away, you're left with just a handful, maybe 10 or less, that could even remotely relate somehow to our eternal destiny and spiritual condition. And of those, none of them have anything to do with turning away from sin. So it's just simply faith alone. Faith alone, faith alone. So the Reformers were right in their, in their you know, sola fide, the cry of the Reformation, you know, faith alone. But they just redefined faith to include repentance of sin, changing your, you know, your uh, direction, forsaking, doing the U-turn. And that's just not helpful. It's not biblical, and it's not helpful. So uh, keep that in mind the next time you see a gospel presentation or a gospel tract that says repent and believe. That's completely out of balance with the testimony of Scripture, especially since John's gospel never even uses the word, and he tells us the whole reason he wrote the gospel was to tell people how to be saved. So, uh, so hey, bring me up of that chair on the end. I want to use it for, an, or never mind, I'll, I'll use this uh, stool here. It's going to be hard to do since I have to kind of stay in the front of the camera for people watching to see it, and, and, but you guys, you know there's a stool here. Another uh, a common illustration that I don't like at all, and I discourage you from using it if you, if you have been using it, is to talk about, you know, believing the gospel in terms of sitting in a chair. And I, st I meant to do this last week, but we just got going 100 miles an hour, kind of like we're doing right now, and I didn't think about it when we were talking about head versus heart faith. And so the illustration that I'm going to explain why it's a bad illustration uh, goes like this. You can believe up here this chair will hold you up, but until you believe it down here by sitting in it, you haven't really believed it. And so they'll say, they'll use a chair, they'll bring it up on stage, and it's, you know, it's the chair analogy, and they'll say, you know, if you really want to believe the gospel, you can't just intellectually believe it, you've got to put some action with it. You know, you've got to sit in that chair. Well, first of all, that shows that they don't understand what it means to believe anything. Okay? Because belief, by definition, is inherently intellectual and not physical, not something that you have to do. So a person, for example, can believe that airplanes fly and have never flown a day in their life, right? We would never say, you don't really believe planes will fly, right? Well, yeah, no, I really do. I, I believe them. Well, you've never ridden in one. You must not have believed it, right? No, of course not. Belief, I can believe something and not act upon that belief, right? So if, if we're going to use an illustration, the Bible says all we have to do is believe the gospel more than 160 times. When I believed it, I'm saved, I don't have to take a secondary step, right? So, you know, when I were, if I were to ask, say, Jeffrey, do you believe this stool will hold you up? Yes. Okay. So he believes it. Why would I question his belief, right? I mean, and it's silly. It's a, it's a nominological fallacy to suggest that someone cannot really know whether they've believed something. And yet that's what Calvinism teaches, is that 
If you believe the gospel, but down the road you're not living a godly life, you're in persistent sin or, quote, habitual sin, whatever that is, and, 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 they, and you're doing all these bad things, you didn't really believe it. Well, how absurd is that? Only the person doing, expressing the faith can know whether they've believed something. And you know, what? Did you have, do you have any doubts? I mean, do you believe, do you think it'll hold you up? Right? Of course you do. I mean, it's not, it's not a fact in dispute. It's not a question in your mind. There are many things that we don't know and we don't believe. I could ask you questions and do you, think, do you believe it's going to rain tomorrow? And you'd say, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't really know. I, I don't know. But, you know, if I, if I say, are your jeans black? You would say, do you believe your jeans are black? Yeah, I believe they're black. It's a fact, right? It's not a fact in dispute. So you can know what you believe. With every single proposition... You can put any proposition you want in there, any propositional truth. There are two options. You either believe it or you don't. You with me? Now, sometimes people will say, well, wait a minute. Maybe I haven't made up my mind yet. Fair enough, but that's unbelief. <laughs> you know, if you either believe it or you don't, if you're not sure, that by definition, that means you don't believe it. You might go come to believe it someday after you've studied it and thought about it, but at the moment, you don't believe it. So at a point in time... On any given proposition, there are only two options. You either believe something or you don't. And what the Bible says has to happen for us to pass from death to life and be born again and guaranteed eternal life and, you know, and, and entrance into heaven someday is we believe the gospel. You do that by being confident or sure that Jesus is who he said he is and will do what he said he'll do. So if this is the gospel, all I have to do is believe it. And to make this contrast of believing up here versus believing here, and until you've really sat in it, you haven't really believed it, is silly. It's, it's, I don't know how that illustration even got any traction. I don't know why the first time someone used it, a person in the crowd didn't say, wait a minute. I mean, are you saying that for everyone in the audience to be able to accurately state that they believe the chair will hold them up, they must all come sit in it? No, I, I'm, you know, I, you know, I'm sitting in the audience and I'm telling you, I believe it'll hold me up. You know, I don't have to sit in it to know that, right? Yeah. Well, ultimately, you won't be able to sit in the chair of your belief that Jesus will save you from your sins until you're dead or in heaven. You know? Right. Because you can't, yeah. you can't try it out. Right. The analogy yeah. is, is very confusing and unhelpful on so many levels. Because there's no corresponding second step when it comes to salvation. That's one condition for eternal life, faith. And when you, when you try to illustrate it using a two-step process, which the reason the illustration developed is because of Calvinistic teaching of the head-heart thing that we talked so much about last week and that I've given you the handout about tonight. And they were trying to say that, well, you can, you can intellectually know that it'll hold you up, but until you've actually sat in it, you haven't really committed yourself to it, right? And, and that's kind of the analogy. But again, I'm just, don't use that analogy. It's not helpful and it's not accurate. Faith is an intellectual exercise that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because they've been taught that there is a contrast between so-called intellectual faith, which is spurious, they say, and real faith, which is non-intellectual whatever that means. And so I like to just throw it right back in their face and say, faith is intellectual. Tell me how you can possibly believe anything without using your brain. You know, I mean, you can't. It's impossible. It's, you must comprehend. You know, that's what 
you know, that's why uh, the Bible says you've got to hear the gospel and believe it. You know, you don't. But of course, if you're a Calvinist and you think faith is something that God forces you to do and you don't have any control over it, it just happens. God did it. Well, then I can see you accepting that premise. But if you believe the Bible, not to be snide, but <laughs> I'm sorry, it's so plain in Scripture that that's the case, um, then you know you know that it is something you can do or you may not do. You either believe the gospel or you reject it. God doesn't believe for you. You have to believe, and when you do, you're saved. So. Um, you don't have to, it's not a two-step process, and that's what made me think of that, as I meant to talk about it last week, but in driving home, I thought, oh, I was going to use the chair thing. But then when we were talking about repentance, so many people say it's repent and believe. And then they try to soften it by suggesting that repent and believe are two sides of the same coin. You know, so see, I'm really, it's really only one coin, but you got two, no, there's not two sides of faith. One side of faith, it's belief. It's the object of our faith that saves us, not how we believe or you know how many steps there are in it. So that's, that was a great question, and I, I don't ever mind. You know, we should talk about repentance till Jesus comes, because it is such a confusing thing, thanks to the devil confusing people about it, that we need to talk about it. But you know, no sense in which the biblical term repent is a requirement for salvation. It can be a description of salvation. Everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone and been born again has changed their mind. They've repented. But they didn't get saved because they made the conscious decision to somehow change their mind. So narrative literature describes things that happen. It doesn't always tell us exactly how it happens. So. We do see examples in narrative literature, like going back to Acts in Acts 16.31, where both the description, the description does correspond to the biblical teaching in the epistles. When Paul and Silas said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, that comports with everything else we read about how to get saved. Um, so, but we need to verify, you know, there's a principle in hermeneutics that we always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. So when you've got half a dozen verses that seem to use this word, change your mind, repent, in the context of eternal life, and you've got over 160 that plainly, unambiguously, and without question tell you how to do it, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, we interpret the obscure in light of the clear. Right? And so many people assume that repent includes sin, so anytime they hear the word repent, they read into it sin. But I'm trying to have us be good Bereans and say, when you look up all the verses of repentance, you know, does do they really say you've got to turn from your sin? And the answer is no. So, great question. Anybody want to follow up on anything else on the list here, or anything else that uh, that we've talked about so far? Yeah. I was just going to say, not so much a question, but it seems to me that how could the gospel possibly be good news if and if you believe any of those right. things? Yeah. You know, and, and the majority of us, I mean, JB, you know, this is a silly question, but, but you know, I, I would ask you, like, what percentage of people, of Christians in this country or the world, believe as you're teaching us? I mean, I've been a Christian for a lot of years, 
And I can honestly say it's not like I've really just done this big, you know, search on repent, but it's really causing me and so many other people to really think about that. Because I mean, even people that I listen to, as you know, different people I listen to, and they'll talk about, you know, God's going to be judging the church, and if the church doesn't repent, well, if mm -hmm. we're the church, if we already believe, then what do we repent? What, what do you mean? Like yeah. coming from what sin? Okay, yeah. I, I sin every day, but. Is, is that why we're being punished? Because the church is not repenting? Well, like I said, you know, you follow yeah. my thinking? No, I do. So I've already repented. I've already accepted Christ. Yeah. And yet... So let I me answer your first question first. Um, this is just my own dead reckoning. I don't... There's not like a list somewhere we can point to. But my guess would be that globally, the vast majority of Christians have an, a misunderstanding about repentance as it relates to salvation. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't bother me because there's a principle from Genesis all the way to Revelation called the remnant principle that basically just says, more often than not, all the fools are on the same side. And the, major, the, major, the majority is typically wrong, right? I mean, so I'm not trying to be in the majority. I just want to be what the Bible says. Mm -hmm. But the other thing to clarify is that you know, there, there certainly is a biblical admonition for believers to repent of sin, to change their mind about sin. And if you, if you are sinning, I recommend you repent. Okay? I want to go on record. Sin is bad. Nobody should do it. It's, it's bad. It leads to serious consequences, discipline of God. Um, it leads to natural dangers. If, you, if you're doing drugs, you could overdose. If you're fooling around, you could catch diseases. There's all kinds of problems with sin. Sin is an equal opportunity killer, and it will kill a believer, and it will kill an unbeliever. So if you're sinning, stop sinning. That's, that's clear. The Bible teaches that. But it never teaches that doing so is what opens the doors of heaven for you. Nobody gets into heaven because they've stopped sinning. And in fact, you can't stop sinning until you have the indwelling Holy Spirit to help convict and lead and guide and so forth. So I'm not saying that repentance of sin as an isolated concept is, is wrong. I'm just saying that's not a condition for eternal life, and it's not what the gospel is. And you're exactly right. It's not good news, right? You know, good news, I'm going to let you sign a contract with me. Good news, everybody, I'm going to let you save yourself. Good news for the world. I've created a way for you to save yourself by giving me something, making a commitment, turning from your sins, surrendering everything to me. Good news. You can save yourself. That, that turns the Bible on its head. Grace is free by definition. It's a gift. That's what makes it good news. Yeah. Yes. Oh, there are um, people who are definitely saved that came to that point in time where they believed but have fallen under bad teaching Absolutely. and over time start believing this stuff and actually teaching it which is really sad because they're listening to popular teachers MacArthur and yeah. other people who have some truth but mixed up yeah. with other stuff and they start so they're not it's not like they lose their salvation correct but they're now not believing the right thing correct so you're exactly right and this friend that I was talking to today uh a new friend, he and I talked about this extensively, and I, I, you know, he, we both were kind of saying the same thing, and it's an important point to make, that just because someone is teaching a false gospel today, one of these things, or some of the other five that we're going to get to, uh, doesn't mean they themselves aren't saved, right? I mean, we all 
or the possibility exists for any believer to be led astray into false teaching. Okay, so what I what you know in the case of those who are teaching this false gospel, what I would say is that if their disciples, the people that they're teaching, their congregants, if all a person sitting under their teaching has ever heard, if the only thing they've ever heard as it relates to the gospel is what that false teacher is teaching, they cannot be saved. That's, it's not possible for them to get saved. Because Paul says it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation everyone who believes it. If they're hearing a false gospel and that's all they've ever heard, you can't get saved, right? So, uh, but we're not saying for a second that necessarily that person is, that's teaching falsely is, is unsaved. My speculation is that a lot of these Reformed teachers, um, because they've been so saturated in the Word in many cases for decades, I just have to believe that you know, at some point along their journey, they heard and understood the pure, simple gospel and believed it. And then they just got off track, and now they're preaching a false gospel, which is sad. You know? um, so, so, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that, um, that's a good point uh, as well. Okay, anything else? I want to get to, we've got about five minutes here uh, or so. I want to get to at least this next one here because it's pretty short. But the gospel is not inviting or asking Jesus into your heart. Okay. Um, did you know, again going back to the same principle with repent, there's not a single passage in scripture that says we have to ask Jesus to save us. Just do a concordant search for ask, or if you have good software, you can see what the Greek word is and search for that, since the Bible sometimes doesn't translate the same Greek word the same way every time. But the problem with this language is it's very confusing. What does it mean when we say invite Jesus into your heart or ask him into your heart? Um, there's nothing confusing about believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, that's Bible says that 160 plus times. And we know what it means to believe. You either believe something or you don't. It's a pretty simple equation, you know, as we were talking about. You either believe it or you don't. It's not, you don't have to think, you know, I don't know what you mean. When I asked Jeffrey, do you believe that chair will hold him up? He didn't go, I don't know. I don't understand what you're saying. Say it another way. I'm confused. He understood perfectly what I meant, and he could answer the question. In this case, he said, yeah, I believe it'll, you know. And when I said, do you think it's going to rain tomorrow? He didn't panic because he did not, he understood it. He just said, I don't, I don't believe it. I can't answer the question. I don't believe it will. I don't believe it won't, right? So nothing confusing about faith, but clearly it's very confusing to say invite or ask, and the Bible, of course, never uses that. It's, it's what I call in some of my writings a depreciating metaphor, a depreciating metaphor. Sometimes in the course of the evolution of language, we create metaphors that actually don't help. They hurt, <laughs> Right? It depreciates the principle. So somewhere along the way, and by the way, I researched this for my first book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, and it turns, turns up for the first time around the turn of the 20th century, predominantly in Baptist circles, this idea of asking Jesus into your heart or inviting Jesus into your heart. So you never see that for 5,900 years of human history until 100 years ago. So I guess if that's what it takes to be saved, people couldn't get saved for the first 5,900 years of human history. But anyway, somehow they felt like when people started using this language, uh, and I get into it in, I think in the, in the new book that Grace Acres Press published, uh, I actually give some very fascinating illustrations of hymns 
around that same time, late 19th century, early 20th century, that started using this concept of, you know, let Jesus come into your heart and things like that, you know. And so it's just, it was a cultural thing. It was intended as a metaphor, but it, it, it didn't help. Um, now, it's certainly true that when we believe the gospel, the Bible teaches Christ does come into our heart. But the Bible never tells us that in order to be saved, we need to ask him to come into our heart. They're confusing the result of faith, or the result of salvation, I should say, with the means of salvation. <laughs> Let me say that again. The notion that you have to invite Jesus into your heart is confusing the result of our salvation with the means of our salvation. The means of our salvation is faith, as we've said ad nauseum. Uh, but the result, yeah, he comes into your, your heart. Or uh, we could look at Ro uh, Romans 8, 9. You are not in the flesh, if, uh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. So, of course, once we get saved, Christ and the Holy Spirit take up residence. Positionally, we are in Christ. He is in us. Um, but that's not how that happens. That doesn't happen because we asked him. Um, nowhere does the Scripture ever indicate that we gain eternal life by inviting or asking Jesus into our life. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's Christ who does the asking. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or, you know, John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So there's a universal call, coming to him as believing in him. There's a universal call that goes out. And it's come one, come all, whosoever will may. So there's an invitation, but, you know, all we have to do is receive it. And it creates this weird... Uh, confrontation if when I'm inviting you, you're inviting me, right? It's the same principle of trying to give something to the Lord. If, if all we have to do is receive it, but we've got our hands loaded down with all the stuff we're trying to give him, give him my life, give him my heart, give him my intentions and all this, then, then there's an impasse there. So uh, all we have to do is take the water of life freely, and we do that by faith. Uh, but there's also a practical matter here. It, it, it creates confusion. And I've talked to many people through the years who, who you know, and it was well-intentioned, but, you know, picture a fifth grader in a Sunday school class at a, you know, stereotypical Baptist church, and the teacher is explaining, you know, sin and salvation and what Jesus did for us on the cross, how he paid our debt, he took our place, and, and you need to be saved, and do you realize you're a sinner and you want to be saved? And the little kid says, yeah. I want to be saved. I want forgiveness, and I want to go to heaven. And the teacher says, okay, great. Bow your head and repeat after me. Dear Jesus, dear Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my heart. Amen. Amen. Congratulations, you're saved. And it's turned this process into a formulaic thing rather than understanding faith. Instead of saying to the child, then great, all you have to do is place your faith in Jesus Christ, and you can be saved. So, you know, kids... Uh, it, it, again, it was a depreciation, depreciating metaphor, as I call it. It didn't help, and it's certainly not helpful today. And why not use biblical terms? Why make up words that don't add to the process, right? Uh, people know what faith means. Yeah. Going back to your original statement, can you put it on the board? I'll put it on there if I decide I still agree with it. <laughs> that one? No, the oh. original one. You say the gospel. 
the gospel is not inviting or asking Jesus into your heart. Right. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. So, to me, this is very ambiguous in that uh, it really doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were to say salvation is not inviting or asking Jesus yeah. into your heart, perhaps I'd understand that. But I, I don't understand that. So the whole, the whole all, all of these, all six of them so far, are explaining what the gospel is not. So we're talking about the gospel is that which when believed brings eternal life. And, the, and we, way back at the beginning, we looked at several verses that use the term gospel in certain contexts as a technical term for that which when believed brings eternal life. It makes a lot of difference. Yeah. yeah. So, so gospel, the term just means good news, and sometimes it's used in... You know, the, the, the king's soldiers brought good news from the field, and that, you know, that has nothing to do with heaven or hell. But we're using it here as the plan of salvation. The gospel is that which, when believed, brings eternal life. And so this is not the good news about how to be saved. You don't get saved by inviting Jesus into your heart, right? Right? Where does the Bible say? The Bible never says that. And for 5,900 years, there's no historical record of that phrase being said anywhere. Unless we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. I can't put a handle to that scripture, but essentially it's referring to believing and confessing that you, you believe. So, again, we're going to get to, let me put it up here. Uh, when we get to number 9, we're going to talk about Romans 10, 9, and 10, which is the verse you just quoted. Uh, which is not what a lot of people think it is, but even still, it doesn't have anything to do with inviting him into your heart. In fact, you just said it. Believe in your heart. You have to believe, and you believe. Are we, are we talking about somatics here that has been handed down in the New Testament church over periods of years? It hasn't. So, so it's a, it is a very important. It's not semantics. It's very important. Nobody gets saved, according to Scripture, by asking Jesus into their heart. That confuses the means of salvation with the result. The means of one and only means of salvation is believing in Jesus. I don't have to ask him to come in my heart. He says, I'm ready, ready to come in. All you got to do is believe in me. So he's the one making the invitation, not us. But the Bible never says, ask Jesus into your heart. There's not a single passage that tells us to ask Jesus into our heart. So why would we use that language? And moreover, they didn't use it until 100 years ago, 120 years ago now, 130 maybe, late 1800s, early 1900s. Would you agree with me that there are many that have made public confessions of faith based on that premise that they have invited Jesus into their heart and he is their Lord and their Savior? So two things. Number one, public confession is not required either. Otherwise, people can never get saved unless they can talk, first of all. So mute people are in hell. And secondly, you have to have other people around you. which is, Faith is inherently personal and individual. And so that Romans 10, 9, and 10 does not mean that. And, and we'll talk about what it means when we get there. Um, but public con there's only one condition. It's not believe and publicly confess. It's belief. Right? And so, number one. Number two... I would say if all someone has ever done is said, Jesus, come into my heart, and they don't understand faith, they're not saved. 
Because you don't get saved by inviting Jesus into your heart. You get saved by believing the gospel. I mean, that seems clear enough in Scripture. We've got to let the Bible speak. That people for the last hundred years, particularly in Baptist churches, have been praying a prayer in which they invite Jesus into their heart is irrelevant, frankly, with all due respect to any Baptists. And I was raised Baptist. That doesn't matter. It's what does the Bible say? And the Bible never tells us to ask Jesus into our heart, ever. It tells us that once we believe the gospel, he comes into our heart, but it doesn't tell us to ask him into our heart. So, I appreciate this, this scripture. I, I got them to memory, but I can't remember their addresses. Unless a man be born again, that's what, what Jesus yeah. told Nicodemus. Exactly. Unless a man be born again, he cannot see, enter the kingdom of God. Correct. Now, how does that differ, born again, using that term, if that's the only term that we apply to salvation, how does that, that differ from what we're talking about in asking Jesus into your heart? So, okay, I'm struggling to understand the question, but Jesus in John 3 was stating that you must be born again to get into heaven. Only that those who receive new life can. He wasn't in that verse, John, John 3 3 and John 3 7, he wasn't telling them how. He goes on to tell them how. Right. Oh, I got to be born again. How do I get born again? Believe in me. And he says that repeatedly from John 3 15 on. <laughs> believe, 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 believe. So regeneration is one of 33 things that happen instantaneously when we believe the gospel. But again, that's confusing the result with the means. How do I get born again? How do I get Jesus into my heart? How do I get justified as righteous before a holy God? How do I get reconciled with by faith alone? And, and Jesus answered that question to, to Nicodemus. Exactly. And he said, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? And, right. And he went on to explain that which is born of the spirit of spirit, that which is born of the water is water, and right. that's reversed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then um, it just seems a bit confusing to me on the. Maybe I'm too Baptistic, I don't know. But. I'm just saying, there's no passage of Scripture that says, Ask Jesus into your heart. I mean, so why would we say that? It never says that. It says, Believe. And so you don't, you don't have to invite Jesus. You don't have to invite the one who's inviting you. And there's so many metaphors that Jesus uses, the banqueting supper, the great feast. You know, when, when, they went out, when the invitation went out, the person didn't say, great, can I invite you over too? You know, you don't in, you're not the one doing the inviting, right? Jesus is doing the inviting. So we don't say, Lord, come into my heart. He says, trust in me and I'll come into your heart. That, that, I don't understand why that's confusing. I, I get that it's a cultural thing that we've all grown up with in the last hundred years. But it's how, how can we know for sure that a child who says, Jesus, come into my heart, understands what it means to trust Christ? It's the same issue we have with repentance. See, we know what believe means. It means to place your trust in someone, to have confidence or assurance in something. We don't know what invite into my heart means. That's a strange word picture, right? I mean, how, how is that helpful to a child who needs to believe in Jesus Christ unto salvation to be told that just invite him into your heart? 
Lots of kids have done that, and I think they're not saved unless somewhere along their journey they heard the gospel and believed it. Paul says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You've got to hear and believe the gospel. Nowhere in Pauline theology or Genesis to Revelation do we get the indication that the means by which a person passes from death to life or is born again. I mean, it, you'd have a point if Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then he went on to explain. And you get born again by inviting me into your heart. And then Nicodemus said, okay, I invite you into my heart. It's just the opposite. He said, you must be born again. How do I get born again? By believing in me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, not whoever invites him into my heart, their heart, it's whoever believes in me, right? So again, 160 times, and the gospel has uh, worked well for 2,000 years, and then uh, well-intentioned. I don't question the motives of that fifth-grade Sunday school teacher. She loves the Lord. She loves her kids. She wants them to go to heaven. She wants to help them come to faith. She's just using a metaphor that is not only unbiblical, it in its own sense is confusing. I've talked to lots of kids, lots of adults, who said, yeah, you know, I, as a kid... I mean, I was all, told all I have to do is invite Jesus into my heart. And, and I didn't really know what that meant. I was waiting for this knocking sound. I was waiting for this knocking sound so I'd know I could open the door of my heart to him. Why not just tell him to believe? I mean, that's what the Bible does, right? 160 times. That's, that's, we don't need to add to the, the single condition of salvation. But, but I totally understand that if, if uh, you've never really stopped to think about it, but that's the purpose of this yeah, and that's, I want to, yeah. I'm not arguing yeah. with you, I'm, I guess I'm caught up with something that I have never in my entire Christian life thought yeah. deeply about that metaphor. Yeah, and, and I understand, I was the same way, and, and I say, you know, I would say as a student of the Word, get, get out the Word and look up, do a concordance search for ask. Whenever, it's never a matter of us asking. We don't have to ask Jesus to come into my heart. He stands ready and willing to come in. All we have to do is believe. Yeah. Inviting or asking will work. Yeah, it also kind of could be construed as a work, you know. Um, it's like Jesus said, I've already paid it all. I've already been to the cross for you. I've already shown my love. I've done everything. Why don't You don't need to ask. There's nothing more to ask for. It's already paid for. All you got to do is take it. So it's like, you know, going back to the gift analogy, which, you know, there's a reason the Bible calls it a gift. If I were to offer Jeffrey a gift, I'm not going to wait until he asks for it. I've already offered it, right? So, so and it becomes this, come up here so, I, so it's still on the uh, uh, video. So it's like your star now. So it's like if asking Jesus into your heart was a, was a requirement, then you create this endless circle that, uh, of absurdity. So I say, I'd like to give you eternal life. And you say, may I have eternal life? And may I'll, have eternal I'll say, life? Yes, I'm, I'm offering you eternal life. And you say, may I have it? No. <laughs> you, you don't have to ask for it, right? Asking for it isn't the issue. It's taking it. It's already offered. So we don't ask for a gift once it's been offered. So if I offer you a gift, you don't say, oh, can I have a gift? May I ask you a question? Would you give me a gift? Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I just did. I just gave you a gift. The question is, are you going to take it? And how do we take it? Thank you, you're, you're done. I'll pay you your royalties later. Um, how do we receive that gift? By faith, yeah. Well, and this isn't the only area where we haven't been 
succinct and accurate because like in prayers a lot of time we pray things that aren't like Jesus be with us. Well, Jesus is with us. We don't have to sure. ask him to be with us. Sure, sure, yeah. So it, this is a matter of honing our understanding and our skill so that we can be biblical. And yeah, and, and again, I don't want to be ungracious or harsh toward you know the Sunday school teacher whoever that might use that because if you were to ask them do you believe a person has to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation they say of course I believe that so there, it's not that they're that they believe heresy it's just they're poorly communicating something that is so unambiguously clear in scripture and so when I ask them that and they say well yeah of course it's it's faith alone then I say why not just say that just say it. Why, why say to a child or anyone, ask Jesus into your heart when the Bible never tells us to do that? It, if there's one thing the Bible's clear about, it's how to have eternal life. We can all agree on that. And why do we need to create an equation that is not only never mentioned in Scripture, but clearly leads to confusion? I mean, you could see how a child uh, would be confused by that, right? Invite Jesus into my heart. What does that even look like? I mean, the cartoon, I think, was actually not just humorous, but actually a little bit sad. The child said, invite Jesus into my heart. What does that look like? Do I get out a scalpel and I cut open? And I, what does it mean? And, 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 and even if they don't know what it means, but they say it, okay, Jesus, I'm not really sure what it means, but come into my heart. That they may or may not have trusted in him and him alone for salvation. So you can... What I'm saying is, inviting Jesus into your heart is inherently non-salvific. Trusting in Jesus is inherently salvific. It's the only thing that can save you. I agree that it's possible someone might invite Jesus into their heart and also trust in Him at the same time. They might get it. They might, they might in their minds think that repeating the phrase, you know, Jesus come into my heart, in their minds means I'm placing my faith in Him. Fine enough. But because there's a risk that they might not understand faith, I don't want to lead them to believe that there's something they can do that might exclude faith that saves them, right? So I, I, to me, it's semantics in the sense that, you know, Charles Ryrie, and I quote this in one of my books, he talks about how semantics is often used to excuse poor and fuzzy communication. So it is semantics in the sense that it's poor and fuzzy communication, right? Um, I'm not, it's not anywhere near the same as, you know, Reformed teaching or other false doctrines that are saying you got to do this or do that or adding conditions. It's more of a poorly worded invitation to salvation that is unclear and never used in Scripture. And I think the ones used in Scripture are, you know, are enough. So, so yeah, no, this is why I go through this. It's very... You know, I live. I've lived and breathed this for 32 years, and so I I enjoy it. I love it, and I've written about it, and it's what the Lord's called me to devote my life to. And I I want to bring these up to get other people to kind of think through some of these um, issues too. I mean, we're going to get to things like praying a prayer. You know, we've we've heard the sinner's prayer. That's not biblical. There's no such thing in Scripture as the sinner's prayer. You don't have to pray to get saved. You have to have faith. Now, faith can often be expressed in a prayer. That's fine. Most people, in a manner of speaking, when you're trusting in Christ, it, it you could describe that as a prayer. But to delineate a sinner's prayer, repeat after me, Dear Jesus, dear, and, and if you've said this prayer, 
you're in. That's misleading. There's no such thing as a sinner's prayer. Um, so, you know, and we'll come back to all these, but forsaking your old ways, very similar to uh, repentance, and then, uh, you know, these public profession. I'm really looking forward to getting to that one. We're going to go verse by verse through Romans 10 and explain what that really means. And then uh, the inclusiveness uh, that a lot of people say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in Muhammad or Allah or Buddha or, you know, no, it's not, it's not a buffet line. <laughs> You've got to believe Jesus is the only one who can save you. So, all right. So I'm going to end, but if you'll ask me that question afterwards, because I know it's we're way over time and some people may need to hit the road. So, all right. Thank you guys. All right. Come on up, Jeffrey. You had five, one for each finger. <laughs> <laughs>